They're going to be in Luke chapter 20, verse 39. What we saw last time is we, see, we received some uh, answers to life's questions, largely precipitated by Jesus being questioned by the Herodians and the Sadducees, which were the quislings of the day, and the Pharisees. Today we're going to see Jesus asking questions of them, exposing them for the false shepherds that they are, and inoculating his disciples against their practices. We're going to start with verse 39. It says, Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. Now this is a, uh, I would say, a conjunctive verse. It ties the last Sunday's message to this Sunday's message. The scribes were part of the Pharisaical sect. They were in opposition to the Sadducees' doctrine, which we explained last Sunday. They didn't believe the Sadducees in the resurrection, angels, spirits, any type of resurrection, afterlife, anything like that. So these scribes, no doubt for years, they were debating their counterparts, their religious counterparts. And now it's something like, hey, that's a great answer, Jesus. Now remember, keeping in mind, these guys are his enemy. But for a moment, they see the wisdom that comes out of Jesus, and they can't contain themselves. Verse 40. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Matthew 22:46, one verse, I'm just going to read that, kind of, there's a little more power in it. It said, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on, that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. So their subterfuge didn't work on him. The greatest religious minds didn't get anywhere. They still weren't able to confound Jesus, because you're dealing with the word of God here. You're dealing with the wisdom of the ages. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's also a truth serum. You put the word of God out and it divides what's, what's true from what's false. Verse 41. And he said to them, now he's asking them a question. After all the questioning they did to him. He said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David therefore calls him Lord. How is he then his son? So there's a dilemma here. This is referring, that particular passage is referring to Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This was a Davidic psalm. And it was also widely known by the rabbis as a messianic psalm. David, via the Holy Spirit, was prophesying of the Messiah through his own bloodline. We see that the Messiah, Jesus, sits at the right hand of the Father after the ascension. When Jesus returns, the second coming, he'll subjugate the world, sin, and evil. Now, a footstool. In those days, what would happen is when kings went out to battle and nations battled against each other, it was a, a cultural thing, uh, the conquering king would put his foot on the enemy's neck, illustrating domination or victory. Now David, being a warrior and also being a lord, but in a temporal sense, small l, knew the practice and all the more wouldn't call anybody master or lord except for the divine or somebody that dominated him. So there's, we have a dilemma here. Now. This doesn't really come out in the English, the Lord said to my Lord. In the Greek, it's epen ha kurios to kurio mu. And all that means is the Lord said to my Lord. So we're in the same position. 
And that's actually a translation that comes out of the Septuagint, which was an ancient document where the Hebrew was translated to the Greek. Okay, so we're still left with the Lord said to my Lord. Now let's go into the Hebrew. In Hebrew, the first word Lord is yod heh vav When Moses went, when God called Moses and he told him to go to the people and, and proclaim him, Moses says, who do I tell sent me? And this is the name God gave him, yod heh vav I am that I am, the self-existent one, the eternal one. Now the second Lord in this, in this portion is the uh, Hebrew word Odonai, which means master or Lord. So now you have a, it, it comes out a little bit better. David is literally saying, there's a conversation going on, right? He's saying, the eternal one said to my master, sit at my right hand until your enemies are made uh, a footstool. So David is, is somehow the Messiah is David's master, even though he's David's descendant. And this is a d- dilemma. It was puzzling to the people of the day, and Jesus puts it to them, right? Now, add to the mix, we have a patriarch, patriarchal society here. The oldest male in the family was honored. The father was always honored over the son, and even the older brother, in most instances, was honored over the younger brother. And there's some exceptions. We saw Jacob and Esau. Esau foolishly sold his birthright for some lentil stew. Now, I like lentils, but I wouldn't have done what he did. But even today, my son is seven years old, right? And there's no conceivable reason, even in our society, that I would call my son master or lord. So it's, it's more to add to this. If you dwell on this passage long enough, taking the culture into account, what you find is that the only conclusion you can come to is that the Messiah is more than a man. He's divine. And this is perfect for this, this Christmas season because, you know, you see a lot of commercialization of Christmas. You see a lot of priorities that we have and what we're losing sight of. Who was this person that came 2,000 years ago to be born by humble means, right, and die for our sins? What's it all about? So the only way David's great-great-great-grandson to the to the tenth power or whatever, uh, depending on how many people were below him, the only way that uh, this could make sense is if his descendant was divine. And when I prayed this morning, I quoted Isaiah 9, 6, and I'd just like to quote it again. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God in the Hebrew, El Gibor, so we know something about the Christ before he's even born. El Gabor, the mighty God, will be born. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. This Christmas season, we need to know what this verse means. And if we don't realize that this is divinity, we're missing the whole point of the Christmas season. There's no reason to celebrate a man who was born under humble means and died an ignominious death on the cross, a shameful death, why would we celebrate that? The only reason that we would is because if that man really was God incarnate and he came into this world, he came to show us the way, he came to help, help us to have a heart repentance, and he died for our sins. For our sins. Even before we even sinned, before we were born, those sins were put upon him on that cross and he buried those sins for us. He was a sacrifice for us. And that's the message. That's the reason for the season. So I believe, though, Jesus' little dialogue with these religious leaders, I believe it was motivated out of love. He gave these people every opportunity to change their ways and become good shepherds because they weren't fulfilling that. 
the suffering servant theme was not catching on. You know, he told the people, he said to the disciples, I'm going to go to the cross. He kept reminding them about what he was going to do. But uh, I think this time he tried the enigma of David calling his son Lord. Another way of giving them the opportunity for repentance. Because Romans 10:17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He was saying to these religious leaders, you guys know the word. And he kept bringing up the word to them. You guys studied this as little kids. You memorized it. As teachers, you teach it. Now understand what this really means. How many times do we, do we see a Christmas card and there's a scripture on there? Or we read a passage for the Bible? Or we hear something on Sunday and it, it just kind of goes somewhere, but it's not really sinking in. And this is what he was trying to get these people to do. Guys, you've got to get this. This is important. Even in the tribulation, Revelation tells us that there will be tribulation saints. Even in those dark times, uh, people will still give, have that opportunity to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Even when nobody else is proclaiming the, the gospel, there's a point in time in the tribulation where the angel flies through the heavens and proclaims the everlasting gospel to the people. Come on, get it, repent. Give it a, you know, God loves you. you know, there's another chance for you. So why did Jesus waste his time with these leaders who conspired really to his death and they knew it? The answer is because God doesn't give up on people. And many of us are living proof of that, that God doesn't give up on people. And my question is today, where are you with the Lord? Maybe some of you think that, well, you know, my situation's hopeless. I've done too many bad things. Maybe some of you haven't given it much thought. Maybe it's time to give it some thought because it's important. In the end of the story here, some of these religious leaders harden their heart till the end and step into a hopeless eternity. That's a frightening picture because life goes quick. It really does. But some repented and received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Acts 6, 7 uh, tells us that many of the priests had come to the faith after the ascension. It also tells us that there were some of the Pharisees and council members who followed him. So some of these people had a heart change. You know, maybe you thought today, some of you, I look out, see some uh, faces that I don't recognize. Maybe you came here to say, you know, you thought that you were coming here to see a children's play. But maybe God had other plans for you. There's no coincidence that you're here. You're here to hear the message of the Savior. There's still time to receive him. 2 Corinthians 6.2 tells us that, this, that basically there's no time like the present to accept salvation. Verse 45. Now this is important. It says, Then in the hearing of all the people he said to his disciples. He's focusing on his disciples, but the other people were able to hear his words. Beware of the scribes. Again, they were part of the religious system. And let's just let's, let's see what they did, these guys, these scribes, who desire to walk in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the, ble- the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. In Matthew 23, you see... That this is a, a small picture, but in Matthew 23, it's a blown-up version of all the things that these religious leaders did. They used people. They took advantage of people. To the poor people, they took everything they could get from them. To the rich people, they, they rubbed up to the rich people and, and uh, you know, made friends with them and, and tried to suck them dry. This is what these people did. Jesus is saying to his disciples, 
Guys, I'm going to the cross, and then I'm going to ascend to be with the Father. Psalm 110.1. I'm putting you guys in charge of the church in the interim. You guys are the stones that build the spiritual house. Peter tells us in his works, right? He tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone. We know that. Jesus is the foundation. But we, believers, are the little stones, the lethoi in the Greek, that go on top of the cornerstone to build that spiritual house. So we all work together, but Jesus is that foundation. He's telling them that these religious leaders ran the system for a long time. They're examples of what not to do. All the stuff that I just read you. Their representation of God gave his character a black eye. And he's telling them, in the name of God, guys, stay away from the following. Covetousness, greed. There was a lot of money back then to be made in the name of God. And today it's no different. It's no different. Uh, there's some things that supposedly men of God do in the name of God that uh, is, is, is frightening. Uh, the way they manipulate people, the way they try to get money from people, the way they uh, are, are, have a lot of hypocrisy in their lives. They say one thing and they do another. Sometimes there's a, a line uh, where the huge flock morphs into an empire. The bigger you grow your empire, the bigger the check you can write yourself. God's not impressed with mega, mega churches, 14, 15,000 people. I mean, it was in the news, uh, the guy, Ted Haggard. This was a man who, uh, and again, I, I feel bad for the guy. I'm not judging him because that's not my job. But I feel even worse for his congregation, 14,000 people. They were crushed because this man lived a double life and they found out later on. Proverbs 18.1 says that a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. The guy at the top, you know, the, 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 the camera's on him and he's, he's doing interviews and he's writing books and, you know, little by little he, he's kind of moving away from that shepherd position and into a celebrity position. I was talking to a pastor uh, Friday and he, he was an assistant pastor at Costa Mesa, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, which is a big church. And it's good. They're told, you know, they have a bunch of assistant pastors that come on. And they're told by the pastor, don't get comfortable because our job is to send people out. They have a tremendous uh, fellowship. But our job is to send people out and plant churches. Go out, right? And that's the way it should be. Keep sending them out. Build the church that way. Now, I'm not condemning anyone for growth, but the desire for unnatural growth. And that's the key. Just like uh, Paul tells Timothy, he doesn't say money is the root of all evil. People say that. Money is a medium of exchange. That's all it is. But it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's where your heart is, where the desire of your heart is. Do you love money? Is that your God? Popularity, another thing that these guys had. Human nature is to want to feel important. Human nature is for people to recognize me. Look at me. Is anybody noticing me? That's the way human nature is. Uh, and these guys, just like pastors today, can become very popular very quickly. The religious leaders du jour were celebrities. They had the highest honor paid to them. They had the best seats at any event. Yes, it's good to respect people in leadership, but they loved the accolades. Remember, their hearts. He was saying they loved it. They loved those seats. They loved the accolades. They loved people to call them teacher, right? To the disciples, he's saying to them, guys, this is, this is great for principles for ministry. If any of you are thinking of you know, getting into ministry or you are in ministry, these are great principles. He's saying to his disciples, guys, don't let this stuff go to your head, right? Like these guys. Remember what you were here for. 
to serve God, not to serve yourself. Don't lose sight of the mission, which is very easy to do. Jesus didn't look for the high honors. He didn't lose his focus. And it's interesting because the crowds always followed Jesus. And a lot of times he'd have to withdraw. There were so many of them. He didn't say, hey, this is great. I'm basking in this. Jesus focused on his core group of people. He tried to build them up. A lot of times he withdrew from the crowds. Another thing is pretentiousness to the disciples. Guys, keep it real. Don't pretend. Don't fall into the trap or the show of pretending you're more important or more holy than you really are. You know, people feel relieved when it's kind of fun to talk about the relationship, marriage relationships. You know, God, I believe, he takes people that are so different, men and women. For, for all of our lives in marriage, we try to figure the other person out because, you know, it's good if you do that and make a better marriage. But sometimes I just talk about interesting things and, and dynamics in our relationship. Heather's not here. She's with the children. That's good. <laughs> I can speak freely. And then she'll come out of the children's ministry and somebody will say, yeah, Joe talked about it. And she comes, what did you say today? <laughs> no, but it's all light because, you know what, we need to be real. Nobody's perfect. And nobody can identify with perfect people because as humans, none of us are. I can't identify with perfect people. If I think somebody's perfect, I don't want to be around them because then I think, you know, something wrong with me. But it's a show, right? <laughs> there is something, something's wrong with me, but I think I'm okay for the most part. <laughs> The fool says everything that's on his mind, right? The Bible says. <laughs> but the truth is, no human can relate to perfect people. Only humans that can relate to that are people that are delusional about themselves. They're, they're misinformed about their own selves. Or fleecing the flock, another thing that these religious leaders were doing. Using people in the fellowship for personal gain. There was a, a scam that... Uh, we had a deal with uh, in, in, old, in um, South Brunswick for a while, and, uh, uh, and, and the scam is everywhere. But it's a, it's a, a simple scam, it's a two, and this is good because now you'll know not to fall into this. It's a two-person scam. Somebody will go to your front door and distract. It's usually they, they pick on elderly people. They get the people to come to the door, and they distract them. They get them to come outside. They talk, whatever it is. They're selling something or whatever, and they just keep engaging them in conversation while the other person goes around to the back of the house, slips the lock, goes into the bedroom, takes the pillowcase, puts all the stuff in the pillowcase, and runs out. That's the scam. And police departments all over have to deal with this type of scam. But what they do is they, they focus on the elderly. And, they, uh, and we would say, oh, that's an awful thing. How could people do that to pick on the elderly? Well, how much worse is it when it's authored by religion and it's out in the open and nobody says anything about that, right? And they, that's what they did back here. There was a scam that they had in uh, Matthew 15, uh, when you read it, it, it talks about the usually in that society, the, the children would take care of the parents as they aged. And they had this scam. The religious system had a, a scam that uh, if you said, I'm going to take that money that I would, I would normally dedicate to my aging parents, and I'm going to put that as Corban in the temple fund, the religious leaders would say, that's good. You know, you're absolved of your responsibility. What happens to the aging parents? So it was just a way for them just to get more money from people. Well, you're doing a good thing. You're giving it to the service of God. I remember my Aunt Felicia. She was an elderly woman when I was a little boy. And uh, she would always write. And she had nothing. She lived in someone else's house in a little room. And she would write these checks to this, this televangelist guy. And you know what? That guy's still around today. But I, I remember her writing those checks. She's, she's long gone now. But um, it's just a shame what people do. These things are designed to make you feel guilty whether they're letters that prey on your emotions, 
or Christian TV, some bizarre things going on in the name of Christ, um, thermometers on the lawn, getting the elderly to put the church in their will, whatever it is, it's, it's, I just don't agree with it. And the other thing is hypocrisy. He talked to these guys about leading a double life, appearing perfect and holy to the crowds, but really being self-serving on the inside and uncaring. And, you know, you've got to look at this time of the year. This is so appropriate to what we're going through in the Christmas season because you should be, you know, certainly people who are secular will maybe not think much about God and all that, but this time of the year they start thinking about it again. So, um, you know, the spotlight this time of the year is on Jesus and people of faith. What are we going to show the world? As churches, are we going to, you know, guilt people into stuffing money in the, in the offering boxes? Hey, before you go to the mall, why don't you put a little shkatol in the offering boxes? You know what I'm saying? Let's have some Italians in the audience. You know, or is this the season? Is it all about overindulging our kids and grandkids? Now, I've got to give grandparents uh, a pass because my son's grandma, she, she wants to give him everything that he possibly could want. But, uh, you know, is that what it's all about, overindulgence? We have one of the ushers in the fellowship who had this uh, practice for a while where his three kids, they would have the Operation Christmas Child, and he would tell them, I'm going to give you a certain amount of money for Christmas to buy gifts, but, you know, I would like you to give some to the, to the less fortunate. And he would say, but the only, you know, string attached is that whatever you give is going to come out of what I give you for Christmas. Now, after a few years, they got wise to what he was doing, but it was a great thing. What he would do is whatever they took out of the money he was going to give them, he would know what that was and he would double it. And that's what he would give back to them in gifts or whatever. So he taught them that there's a reward for your, uh, for your giving. And I think that's a great thing to teach our kids. Uh, and we should be teaching them something about what Jesus taught us at this time of the year. Or what is it all about? Is it about, you know, you go to the mall and you find a spot that's close to the place and somebody sneaks in there and you're all angry at them, you know, and you want to beat them down in the parking lot? You know, people do the, the, the most awful things this time of the year. Crime goes up. Substance abuse goes up. Uh, a lot of the, the worst in mankind goes up at this time of the year. And that's not what it's all about. What are we showing the unbelieving world? You know, what, what's our example to them? And it's interesting that the play was today, and I was trying to tailor the message so I could get you out of here on time, but I'm, I'm watching what the kids were doing up here, and the message for this year is a very simple message. I mean, they just did a fantastic job. That God sent his son into the world by humble means, of a humble family. He grew up, he taught us the way, he uh, died for our sins. He went willingly, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I go willingly to the cross. He went to the cross willingly, and he died an awful death for our sins so that we could have everlasting life, and that's what it's all about. No matter if they take it away from the public life or the, the, the supermarkets, they don't have better things to do but to think about, should we have a Christmas display or not? We can't, should it be a snowman or a Christmas tree or a nativity? These are the hard decisions that people have to make. But... What do we think about this? You know, what are we showing the world? The message of Christ. That's what, what it's all about. In chapter 21, we'll go through the first four vo- verses, and then we'll, uh, we'll be done for the, the day. But chapter 21 is about generosity and God's perspective. Verse 1 says, Then he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Now, 
this is something that it says then. It's, um, it's a chronological statement. Uh, chapter delineations and verse delineations didn't come until many years later. As a matter of fact, when they wrote the Greek, they would just put it all together. Right? So don't let the chapter 21 fool you. This is really part of what Jesus spoke about. Jesus draws a comparison or a dichotomy between how the religious leaders practiced their faith in the last segment and how this poor widow practiced her faith. On the one side, you had it done with pomp and exultation. On the other side, you have it done with humility. And you see what Jesus is rewarding. He also draws another distinction between giving out of abundance and giving out of poverty, which shows true generosity. Now, just to give you a little background, this t- took place and when we had a few Sundays back. We had the, the screen up and the diagram. You had your basic temple, the building, and then you had the court of the priests around it. And then you had the court of Israel around that. And then you had the court of women. And then outside you had the court of the Gentiles. So these were open areas where people could see what was going on, but they were cordoned off. So you had most likely this took place in the court of women, where this elderly woman was. Uh, Historical reports tell us that there were 13 offering boxes, uh, some for the temple tax, and the rest were for the free will offerings. Two mites back then adjusted for our inflationary rate, two mites came out to far less than a dollar together. So it wasn't much money. But I've also seen offerings where uh, maybe organizations will put something out and it'll put it in the front and it'll say, uh, no change, just paper money. Some churches do that. I think that's disgraceful. What does that say to a little kid who wants to... And it just goes right back to the story. Doesn't anybody read the Bible anymore? It goes right back to the story. This widow went there, and she put in her two mites. And Jesus said, look at what this woman put in, man. That was big bucks. And the disciples are probably going, yeah, but that guy's got, look at all all the money he's stuffing in there. No, 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 guys, look, look at the widow with the two mites. Let me me tell you something about that. What does that say to children or widows, for that matter, if they don't have a dollar or five dollars or whatever? It it says that your offering is not good enough. And you know what? That's that's shameful. Verse 3. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty has put in all the livelihood livelihood that she had. Again, people were seeing probably the the rich people and maybe it became like a sporting event. See, hey, how much is that guy putting in? You know, how much this guy put in the most? So they're, they're looking around. But... People see the big money that's put down, but God sees the heart. God sees the heart giving. What's left after you put in what you put in? Do you put in out of your abundance, or do you put in out of your poverty? The widow gave barely anything, but God will reward her great generosity as she had little to give. I remember seeing an interview with Ted Turner. Uh, I guess he was the the founder of CNN and some other things. And, And they actually, in the interview, they questioned his generosity. And his answer was, you know, he had about $2 billion, would it be, billion, right? And he said he needed enough money for the rest of his life. $2 billion? I'm in a lot of trouble if I need that much money for the rest of my life. I thought about, because I like to think about things, I thought about my first job in Staten Island when I was 13 years old at Bagel Express, and <laughs> I still remember that. From 13 years old, if I work my whole life, I'm not even going to come, not even half, not even a tenth of that. I'm not going to come close to that. But it's just amazing how, how people uh, have that idea. It's like that's his God. That's what he holds on to. That's going to secure him for the rest of his life. 
But what if he died tonight? How would he explain his stinginess to God? Remember we covered the rich fool, the parable of the rich fool? He said, I have so much. What am I going to do? Although the thought didn't come, well, maybe give it to charity or help people out. The rich fool said, well, I'm going to build bigger barns, bigger storehouses, because I just keep accumulating stuff, wealth. And God said to him, you fool, this night your life will be required of you. And I couldn't help but think of that in that interview, so pray for Ted Turner. But let's go deeper. This picture of the widow, it was a picture of a a woman who didn't withhold anything from God. It, it, It actually went deeper than the money that she put in. You know, this, this shows you a little bit about her heart, that no matter what it was, she would give to God. This little old lady put in everything that she had into that box. And the question is, is there anything that we withhold from God? That's a good lesson for us. Is there any areas of our lives that we could say we haven't totally given over to God? It's like, God, I'll give you 90% of my life, but there's a 10% that is kind of private. I really don't want you to kind of go here. You know, this is little thing that I got going on the side. I don't want to give it all to you. But not the widow. It, it just goes to show you the reflection of our heart. Is there anything, and I've said this before, is there anything that's truly our own? Really, think about it. Your family, your house, your cars, your pets, you know what I'm saying? A nice day. Is, it, is there anything that you really have control over? God is the one who ultimately, he's the one who gives us these things to do and to glorify him with the life that he's given us. So nothing, there's nothing that we have that we should hold on tightly because it can slip through our fingers. True generosity, the absolute amount of the check that's written really means nothing because it depends on who's writing that check. And generosity doesn't, it doesn't end with writing the check. I've got to tell you, when I was sitting back there watching this, I, I started tearing up in my eyes because I didn't realize how much they put together for this play. I mean, people put their own time they, some of the people sewed the costumes together and they, they made all this wacky stuff over here. <laughs> you know, but I mean, people put hours and hours and hours into it and it was the generosity that came out of their heart. They wanted the kids to be blessed. They wanted you to be blessed. And I got blessed too out of the whole thing. So it's not, it's not just about writing a check. It's about putting in your time with people. And that's something that it, it, it becomes easy sometimes for us to write a check. But... A lot of times we have the mentality, I just don't have time for that. But if I write a check, I'll be okay. No. It's, it's generosity covers a lot of things. True religion. Religion is hollow if it's not based on God's truth, which we found in his word, which he left us. Starting with the debate with the religious leaders last Sunday, without a belief in Jesus, the Bible tells us that we can't even say that we have a relationship with God. First John tells us that Uh, that we can know that we have eternal life. If we have the Son, we have eternal life, that gift of God. If we don't have the Son, we don't have eternal life. It's very simple. Don't get mad at me because I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what God's Word says. And if we truly have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we won't use people. We'll love people instead. We won't look at people as a stepping stone to achieve our own goals. True generosity Out of all the people coming and going from the temple that may have uh, made a spectacle of of their giving and impressed certain people, because we we get impressed as humans with silly things, with temporal things, Jesus can only find an insignificant widow who truly understood true generosity. Individuals, celebrities, corporations alike make a show of giving this time of year. It's good business for them because 
you get, they do their tax, their year-end tax write-off, right? And they get a little publicity to boot, a little recognition, a little quid, quid pro quo going on. But this widow, on the other hand, gave out of her poverty, didn't get anything in this temporal life, understood sacrifice. Again, she got no earthly reward. James 1.27 tells us that uh, pure, undefiled religion before God, the, God and the Father is this, to vi- visit widows and orphans in their need and to be unspotted from the world. Jesus taught us to do good deeds in secret, to not let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but so let each one, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, we're not to be forced to give. It's, here's where it makes sense. Receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Jesus, he, he changes our lives. He changes our heart. And then what happens is, because of that, we become generous. Our heart changes. And it's not a compulsion. It's a joyful giving. And that's when we learn it the right way. Not that you, you get forced to give money and then it'll make you a good person. It's backwards. So let's exercise these biblical principles of religion and giving this holiday season. Let's pray.